Hello, this is Digital Accessibility, the people behind the progress. I'm Joe Walensky, the creator and host of this series. And as an accessibility professional myself, I find it very interesting as to how others have found their way into this profession. So let's meet one of those people right now and hear about their journey. All right, well, here we go with another episode where I have the opportunity to talk with an accessibility practitioner. And today I am visiting with Erica Ellis. Hello, Erica. How are you today? Hey, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I'm at my home office on Vashon Island, which is near Blink's headquarters uh, in Seattle, Washington. Uh, where are you talking to us from? I am from my home office in Boulder, Colorado. All right. Well, lovely place. I visited there. So uh, um, how's the uh, how's the winter going along for you? We're edging into spring, which is nice, but Colorado has some pretty weird weather or weather swings. So we have like fake spring and then back to like deep winter. March and April is actually when we get our the most amount of snow. So um, we get teased a lot here, which is kind of sad at this time of year. Well, it's uh, great to be able to have this uh, conversation with you. And always the good place to start is if you could tell us a little bit about the work that you're involved in right now. Absolutely. So right now I'm the head of product equity design at Uber. I've been at Uber for almost two years. Um, I was hired to fill a commitment that Uber had made um, after the murder of George Floyd, Uber committed to 14 acts of anti-racism and be an anti-racist company. Hiring an inclusive design lead was one of those commitments, and I happened to be that person. Um, luckily, there was someone internally, Zach Singleton, who is an absolute incredible human being and product manager who made Uber make that commitment. And so I've worked very closely with him over the almost two years that I've been there. Um, to build a team and a practice around inclusive design and product equity. We now have people in design, content design, research, product management, program management, and engineering across iOS, Android, backend, full stack. Um, so we've expanded quite a bit in those two years, and we've done um, quite a bit of work building the foundation for the team as well as the practice within Uber which if any of you have done that, you know how challenging it can be to start a new practice, particularly one around equity or accessibility. So yeah, that's a, in a nutshell where we're at right now. Well, uh, yeah, I was uh, definitely interested in, in chatting with you because accessibility, you know, certainly, uh, you know, fits within the the uh, DEI uh, umbrella in organizations, but it does vary from organization to organization. And so um, how does accessibility fit into the types of activities that you're responsible for? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's so interesting to see how different companies or different organizations really structure that difference between equity and accessibility. And, and even in the justice world as well, when we talk about equity or DEI, like disability is not always considered part of that, which is unfortunate. Um, so here at Uber, um, we actually kind of go against the trend of tech a little bit, and accessibility is fully integrated into our product equity team. So we are looking at disability, race, gender, socioeconomic status, religion, 
education, all of those things that make up our identities and the diversity of the world um, and put it into one team. So there's not a specific team or person that focuses on accessibility and a specific team that focuses on everything else. We are all within one. And uh, as an organization that he, there's uh, certainly the digital presence that's an important important part of what you do, and then it's also tied to the physical presence uh, uh, in the world. And so, um, you know, how do those two pieces fit into the types of things that you work with? Yeah, that's one of the most exciting things about Uber is it's not just an app. It's not, like you said, just that digital touch point. It's in the physical world. It's, you know, personal interactions between two human beings on occasion, right? If you're on the right side, if you're on the east side, generally a little bit less, but um, that to me makes this just such an interesting space to be in. Um, over my time in product design and UX design, I've really developed a passion for service design which is making sure that you're understanding every single touch point involved. And I think a lot of technology companies really need to start shifting their mindset in that direction. Um, we do tend to get stuck in, you know, oh, I am a product designer. I'm going to design that digital product. I'm going to make this digital app, you know, work well and be designed well. But then I'm not thinking about the support experience or the policy that sort of determines how someone can interact with that digital product or you know, in Uber's case, those interpersonal interactions. Um, and so something we're really pushing on our team and something we have to because equity is everywhere and it's systemic or, you know, the lack thereof is systemic. So making sure that we are partnering closely with our support teams, with our operations teams, with our policy teams, with our legal teams, with our marketing teams, with our DEI teams, and of course, with our product teams as well to make sure we're considering like every piece of that experience um, and something I've noticed over my many years kind of doing this work is that oftentimes accessibility or equity, um, those communities that are systemically excluded actually get pushed to support more often than not, right? Considered an edge case. And so we're not going to solve for that in the app, but we're going to push it to support. So I think it's time that we start pulling those things out and giving people more agency over their experiences um, and actually building the experience for them and not just relying on support to solve all of these quote unquote edge cases, which obviously we know that's um, a myth. And if we design for accessibility and for equity across the board, like everybody who uses that product or experiences that service is going to benefit from it. Well, one of the things that I like to do in this uh, program is to find out how people first found their uh, way to accessibility, either through lived life or work life or a combination, and and then the evolution that brought you to uh, where you are today. So um, and how did it begin with you? What was your first exposure to accessibility? Yeah, my first exposure to accessibility was my great-grandma. Um, so she... I uh, went deaf later in life. I think it was in her 50s, um, which of course I did not know her at that point in time, um, but she used uh, a TDD. So like we also used a TDD to communicate with her. And, you know, earlier on in my life, we would have to call the switchboard or, or whatever it was and actually like talk to her through someone else. And then we were lucky enough to get our own TDD. So we could type messages back and forth for, with her through the phone lines. 
um, which was just the coolest thing to me as a kid. Um, and then I remember she she lived uh, around Wichita, Kansas, and then moved up to Kansas City, um, probably when I was in middle school or something like that. Really helped her set up her new apartment and like had the doorbell attached to the light. So when the doorbell rang, certain lights would go on and off. And when the phone rang, other lights would go on and off. Um, so it was really, to me, that was just like, it wasn't accessibility to me and it wasn't assistive technology to me. It was like, oh, this is just how my great grandma operates. Cool. I'm also going to operate that way. Um, so that was really my first exposure to it. And then um, like throughout my life, I've been like very much an advocate for the environment, you know, and climate change and all of these different like pieces of advocacy kind of morph into one another as, you know, all justice is kind of tied up together. Um, so when I was first out of college, I think it was my, was maybe my second job out of school, I was actually the only woman um, at a startup that I worked at. And so it was very, it became very blatant to me, like the gender disparity within tech um, from a financial standpoint, as well as an opportunity standpoint, as well as like how I was treated standpoint. Um, and I mean, it was an amazing place to work. And I'm really glad I got that opportunity, but it really did open my eyes to a lot of things as well. So I worked with some friends and colleagues um, in Kansas City, where I was at the time. I was a founding board member of Kansas City Women in Technology, where we built networking opportunities, talks, um, a night school to, to teach and mentor people, um, and to really build community for women in technology there. Um, I also planned a hackathon, um, which was aimed to get 50-50 representation between men and women um, at the hackathon, which I know is a very binary point of view now, but at the time, like, that's where my learning was at. And um, we ended up doing that. We did a lot of research to understand what would make women want to show up and do this. And we really discovered that women want to do things for the greater good, where men will typically want to like, you know, go after a business idea or something like that. So we intentionally built a hackathon around civic design for Kansas City. Um, and we actually ended up hitting that um, that parity between men and women, which was really cool. And then, you know, continuing on the trajectory, I got very much involved in different DEI efforts in places that I worked from like a grassroots level. Um, and then at my last job, I uh, had just joined and they had just started redesigning their design system which um, as I'm sure most of you know who are listening, it's really like the components and, and the base of how you build your products from a design perspective and an engineering perspective. And uh, their primary button was did not meet color contrast standards. And I had worked in startups and consulting prior to being there. So that was basically the only thing that I knew about accessibility at that time. And I was like, this is literally the simplest thing that we can do and we're not doing it. So what's going on here? So I started digging and asking questions and talking to people and I got connected with their tiny, tiny little accessibility team of two people at the time. Um, and they just quickly adopted me as like probably the first designer that had expressed interest in accessibility. Um, so I learned so much from them. I um, help them build an accessibility lab with technologies, build out education pathways for design, product, and engineering, um, and then really started building a roadmap for what that work could look like longer term. And of course, what it looked like beyond accessibility too. 
what are all these other pieces of identity that we're not looking at, we're not designing for, um, and pitch that to our leadership team there and was able to form a tiny little team of two focused on inclusive design. Um, and then I led that for, for a while and then I, I ended up here at Uber. Well, uh, you know, just checking in with the the things that you uh, just talked about. Um, so um, there's there's certainly a lot to learn about accessibility when when you uh, first get into it, and you're probably well, I don't know, but uh, I know it you know it overwhelmed me when I first uh, started to to learn about it twenty some years ago. Um, but what was like? What was it like? Uh, for you, you mentioned you had your uh, colleagues who are already accessibility specialists. But what was the was there any certain uh, way that you were able to uh, educate yourself and start to uh, uh, understand the various issues involved? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I think working with people who are experts is probably it's at least the way that I learned the best but also digging really deep into all of the other experts that were out there starting to follow disability advocates and you know people fighting for disability justice and really going and finding the ins and outs of inclusive design. I mean, there are a lot of great resources out there like Adobe or Microsoft have a lot of really amazing work in this space and trying to figure out where those places were that I could start learning those smaller bits of information, you know, going to AxCon, like all of these different conferences that are out there as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was super overwhelming when I started it was like, oh, accessibility, you know, there's just like a handful of things that I knew I could be thinking about. And as a designer, not that I necessarily always thought about, right? Um, this is a huge learning curve and not just a learning curve, but a practice curve because knowing what you should be doing and then actually doing it are two very different things. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely overwhelming and it was shocking to me too that we were not designing for this entirely different like usability patterns, right? You think about web usability patterns or mobile like Apple iOS or Android, um, but assistive technologies, right? They have their own usability patterns. And this was just this whole missile model that we weren't thinking about and just like the number of people who had never been exposed to accessibility or assistive technologies or that color contrast wasn't even, you know, a thought in their mind at that time. So yeah, it was, it was a overwhelming with the amount that I had to learn and also overwhelming in the amount of work that laid ahead of us to make sure that we were starting to make progress on accessibility and starting to change both mindset and behavior. Well, uh, you know, when you're talking about mindset, um, you you mentioned a lot of the challenges that were involved there, and that it started out as is is a very small uh, team. Uh, uh, so, as a as a designer, as you began to take that on, um, it also requires a lot of resources and support. So, uh, you know, you have any stories to tell about kind of how that involved? Where you were able to have the you know just the time and uh, uh, your support to be able to get the things done to move forward? Oh my gosh, we could talk for an entire hour just about resources to get this work done. Um, but I think there, there are definitely a few things that I've learned um, throughout my experience in this space. And I, the most important, at least in my opinion, is top-down. Like I've worked in many organizations, whether formally or informally, where it is very much a grassroots effort. 
even you know where I was previously, where we did get buy-in to get two people dedicated to the work, it was still very much a bottoms-up. Like, how do we get them to care? How do we get them to value this? How do we get them to prioritize it? How do we get more resources? Because two people, you know, fighting against systems of oppression isn't going to get you very far. Um, there's just too much there, and also the opportunity to connect with other organizations. You know, like I'm saying at Uber, where we work across literally every organization that exists within the company, that wasn't an option where I was previously. Um, we were kind of shut off and sequestered, right? So our ability to succeed was limited. So I think that top-down impact, the top-down buy-in support and resourcing, um, as well as access to all of the players that you need to get the work done and their buy-in and their accountability there. Um, but you also do need that grassroots side, right? Because none of this stuff would have ever happened without that. Um, and that, to me at Uber at least, is one of the things that I found the most interesting when I was interviewing is that I could tell that there was very much top-down support for this work and investment, but there were already so many people doing the work at that grassroots level that they just needed to figure out how to connect those two, and then we could really start making some momentum. I think you also mentioned that uh, you put together a, a plan, a forward-looking plan. I forget exactly what you, how you referenced it, but that tends to be something that represents, uh, you know, more mature approach to uh, accessibility when we start to formalize the process for uh, being able to move forward and setting goals and objectives specifically for that. And so, uh, you know, how, how was it for you in that uh, in that previous organization and, and kind of how are things set up now at at Uber to be able to kind of uh, uh, look six months out, a year out, three years out? It, I, I know it's difficult, but uh, any uh, things happening with respect to that? Yeah, yeah, it is super difficult, um, especially and I think tech holistically is in this place where we're still in a very reactive state. There are companies or organizations that have kind of shifted to a more mature model of working. So like I mentioned, you know, I've, I've been here for about two years at Uber and that's as old as this practice is. So we are still in a reactive state. We're still learning what's broken. We're still learning what needs um, work and improvement. Um, so we're, we're really trying to understand what it is that we need to do, what the scope of those things are. But we are also really trying to figure out how to be more proactive. So we are establishing different systems and processes that will allow us to have more of a future-facing perspective and catch things that might potentially cause an issue before they go out. Um, so we're really trying to find that balance between reactive and proactive. Um, and we're looking at it through multiple different lenses. So some of that is like equity evaluations or, you know, like we're planning on doing some accessibility audits. Like what is, what is going on? Trying to establish that baseline of which we can measure like success and progress moving forward. And then of course, you know, we're a product team. So we're building product things like any other product team, you know, launching things, shipping things within the product, but focusing those experiences um, on communities that have been systemically excluded. And then on the other side, really looking at the systems, the processes that are in place, 
And how can we adjust those so that we can ensure that every team has what they need to do this work? So making sure that we're building education, we're building tooling, um, and again, like building in different checkpoints within those processes and systems so that other people also have to do this work, but they also are supported in doing it and they have what they need to be successful in it. Well, uh, you know, looking uh, toward the future, uh, just maybe more uh, generally or, or specifically, are there any things that um, you're particularly enthused or passionate about uh, working on in in the coming months uh, or you know another aspect uh, to maybe uh, consider or comment on is are, are there any areas where you see uh, significant challenges in accessibility where you think uh, the uh, the profession needs to uh, pay more attention it's kind of an open-ended uh, you know question about you know where you see some of the more important things happening for you and and the profession moving forward yeah i mean there's always room for improvement right like in the grand scheme of things we're still early in the journey of well for sure product equity but accessibility as well um and i i'm super excited about moving more into like designing for cognition and um really making sure that we're building things that are accessible and inclusive for people with invisible disabilities as well. Um, I know Microsoft just came out with this really cool guide that I'm reading through um, around designing for cognition specifically, but there is a, a big difference, um, at, at least in the, the physical world, right? Like, you know, Uber, where we exist kind of between that digital and physical world of um, people's perceptions of what disability is. And so making sure that people with invisible disabilities are included and have an equitable experience as well. I think it's a really interesting place to dive into. Um, but holistically, what I'm most excited for, kind of going back to your first part of your question, um, for the work itself is, is the education around how when you do this the right way, it benefits everybody. Like seeing the scale of solving a problem for what is a, a potentially very small community, but seeing that being able to scale to help everybody else. Um, we're, we're actually working on a project right now where it is a very specific issue for a very specific community. And we are designing a solution very specifically for them. But you know, when we start to consider other identities and other needs, like that quickly expands to other people maybe everybody, but a lot of people. So seeing it go from like this perspective of, oh, we're only helping like whatever small percentage that is to being like, oh, actually it's, you know, a much larger percentage than that. And then also being able to translate it to other pieces of the product as well um, is a really cool thing to see. So I want to create more work like that where we are designing for potentially, you know, the most marginalized community but showing the rest of the company how that expands, how it scales, and how it benefits every single user, because that's what's going to prove impact for this team and the value of this team and the value of this work, right? Because for so long, people have been systemically excluded because they thought they were a minority or that there weren't enough people to work on that problem and really kind of debunking that myth. Um, and I think the other thing that I'm really excited about is like the the change in language 
around the work that we do, which we've done some really intentional work at Uber around. Um, but you know, when you talk about a minority, what does that actually mean? And, and where is that putting the responsibility of that problem on? So making sure we're being very specific and also thinking globally, like, you know, often people, at least here in the US, right, where can white people are considered the majority, which is, you know, not the fact globally. And I think it's uh, maybe 18, people turning 18 each year, like, um, white people are no longer the majority there. So making sure that we are continuing to build for the people that need the products that we're creating and shifting our mindset and our perspective around, you know, what is a minority and what is marginalized and who's doing that marginalization and why, and trying to consider the bigger picture in this. Um, because the work that we do is, is to combat systemic oppression whether it's accessibility work, whether it's, you know, equity, gender, race, et cetera, work. Um, and we need to be working together within tech across equity, across accessibility, and across all of the different organizations within our companies systemically to make sure that we can kind of do that. We can't do it alone. It's, it's going to be this really big group effort. Um, and sorry, one more thing I'm really excited about before I stop. Um, there was a, a, a small summit that was held at Meta at the end of last year. Um, it was the first like product equity summit and there were people from several large tech companies, including Uber, Meta, obviously, um, Google, LinkedIn, and more. And like, we want to move tech along. It's not just about moving Uber along. It's not just about moving Meta along. It's about moving the industry and doing it together and trying to share those learnings and help support each other and lift each other up so that this work can go farther and faster, um, which I think is is a pretty incredible thing that you don't really see a lot of in tech. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> oh, you're muted. <laughs> yep. Well, you uh, gave us a lot of uh, great ideas there and things to think about uh, toward the end. And it it's fun to see uh, there's so many things for you to be excited in, in your own area and things for uh, me to think about as well. Uh, but uh, I uh, enjoyed this opportunity to uh, chat with you and uh, maybe we'll meet up together in the physical world at an event or some, something like that in the future. That would be awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. It was great to chat with you. Thank you, Erica. Hi, I'm Joe Walensky, and as host of the Digital Accessibility Program, I like to keep the focus on our amazing guests. But I'm always excited about my role as Accessibility Director at Blink, the producer of this program, and I'd like to share that with you. Blink is the world's leader in evidence-driven design, and we work with a wide variety of clients. Founded in Seattle, we also have offices in Boston, New York, Austin, San Diego, and San Francisco. Our stated mission is to make technology human. Embracing inclusive design and accessibility brings all of us closer to that mission. We bring accessibility in every one of our projects. Our philosophy is that each of our practitioners should understand how accessibility applies to their own work. Accessibility is not a separate department or activity for us. 
our researchers, designers, and developers all employ accessibility principles at every stage. If you have a need for research and design services, Blink is a partner with a full-time commitment to making your product or service accessible and a great experience for all of your customers. Some of the specific areas where we can help, using research to better understand the needs of your customers with disabilities, innovating to make sure your accessibility is the best in class design. We can move existing designs to development in a sprint, and maybe most importantly, we provide a turnkey transformation to an accessible site or app. Of course, compliance status is something that we always include as part of the service. If any of this is of interest, please get in touch with me directly at joe at blinkux.com. That's J-O-E at B-L-I-N-K-U-X.com. Thank you. And please take a moment to rate our program in whatever app you use.